0: Let's give it up for these families real quick So exciting to see just the next generation of disciple makers on the stage And we're just so excited for um, just new life um, at this church And so well, My name is Doug, and I'm one of the pastors here at Parkview, and it's, it's really my joy to be able to, to be with you on um, a, a, any Sunday, but especially on this Sunday, the first Sunday in Advent. Um, really a, a wonderful time of year and if you have your bibles i would encourage you be greatly helped this morning if you take them out and open them up to the prophet of jeremiah in the old testament jeremiah chapter 33 specifically going to be looking this morning at uh, verses 14 through 16 jeremiah 33:14 uh, through 16 Um, It will be no shock to you that right now we're turning to our Bibles. If you've been around Parkview very long on Sunday mornings, this is just what we do. We um, look to God's Word. We believe that when we open up this book, we um, learn a great deal about um, the meaning, the purpose of life, why God has created us, who God is. And really, every Sunday morning, as we turn our attention to this book, Um, Our hope is to see Christ exalted here in this place as his word is proclaimed. And typically the way that we do that as a church is we walk through um, significant sections of the Bible at a time. And so as a church, we just finished up a series walking through just one chapter, John 17, a really significant chapter in the Gospel of John. And we spent about eight weeks looking at that one chapter. After the beginning of the year, we'll launch a new series where we'll, we'll hunker down in the book of Acts and we'll spend significant time just week by week walking through the book of Acts. Um, the Advent season is going to be a little unique in the sense that um, there will be a variety of selected passages that we've chosen that will really sort of help guide us through this Advent season. And so um, this week, that passage is coming to us um, from Jeremiah chapter 33. We heard the Reckimer family read it earlier And I'm going to read it for us again, then I'll pray, and we will just dive right in, okay? This is Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we um, come before you as, um, as really... Uh, a people, more specifically your people, um, who are in need of a word this morning, Lord, a word of hope. And um, I pray that um, as we look at your word and as it comes to us here in Jeremiah, Lord, that you would you would provide for us just that, and that you would use this word which we believe to be um, holy and which we know to be true, and we just ask that you would write it on our very hearts, and would you use it this morning to form us, God, into the people that you have made us to be. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Well, the siege of Sarajevo began in 1992. It was the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And it was, this siege was the longest siege of a capital, of a capital city in the history of modern warfare. Within a short period of time, the city, a historic center of art, music, and culture, was being pounded into rubble. Many of you remember perhaps the, just watching this story unfold um, over the news. The residents did their best, the best that they could, to hide in their homes. Many were injured. Many were killed. And during this time, there was a serious shortage of food. If you can imagine living in this city at this time you would be described as perhaps a people without hope, losing hope quickly. Well, on May 27th, 1992, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, a mortar dropped in the middle of one of the few functioning bakeries that remained in the city. 22 people lost their lives on that afternoon, most of them simply standing in line, waiting For bread. Well, one resident of the city decided that he had to do what little he could to inspire hope throughout the city. His name was Vedran Smolovich, and he was the principal cellist with the Sarajevo Opera. And on the Sunday following the bombing of the bakery, uh, Mr. Smolovich, with cello in hand, walked to the site where the bakery had stood at exactly the same time, 4 p.m., the time of the bombing. And he played a concert for the people in full tucks and tails. He played for 22 straight days in memory of the people who had been killed at the bakery. Smolovich played despite the fact that bombs were being dropped around him, bullets were flying by him, After the 22 days were completed, the cellist continued to play at various places throughout the city, graveyards, and bombed-out buildings. He offered his peaceful music in places where peace had been so obviously shattered. Smolovic played amidst the rubble until December of 1993. One writer put it like this, He played to ruin homes, smoldering fires, scared people hiding in basements. He played for human dignity, and that was the first casualty in the war. Ultimately, he played for life, for peace, and catch this, for the possibility of hope that exists even in the darkest hours. In this Advent season, in the midst of the rubble of the world, in the midst of the pain and suffering around us, in the midst of communities that are torn apart around the world by things such as war, and in the midst of the personal Pains or loss or grief or financial ruin that many of us have endured. In In the midst of great sin and wickedness, we are reminded that the gospel of Jesus Christ is hope for a people in desperate need of hope. It is a light that shines in the darkness. This morning, as we collectively look at this passage in Jeremiah chapter 33, my hope is simply that we would be a people who would be filled with hope because we know that better days are coming. Better days are coming. As we look at this passage this morning, we we'll see there's three verses here, and the outline for this morning is just gonna follow those three verses Point one, be the need for better days. Point two in verse 15, the promise of a king. And then point three in verse 16, the result of his reign. So the need first. Let's first consider the need for better days. Look at verse 14. You'll be greatly helped this morning if your Bible is is open and you're looking at it. Verse 14 says, Behold, the days are coming. This is a phrase that is repeated several times, a reference to days that are ahead, future days, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Um, One of the challenges that we have as we dive into certain passages over this season and not following a book Is that there's a lot going on that's going to be challenging to sort of understand and unpack in just a few moments But basically what's going on here is keep in mind jeremiah was a prophet He was specifically a prophet who was called to warn or to exhort the people of judah some 600 years before christ was born Specifically, he was called to the southern two tribes of Israel, known as Judah, where the city of Jerusalem was located. As a people, you can be sure of it, these were a people who were in great need. Of warning, They were in great need of warning. While, while God had called them, these people, to be a, a special people, a people who were, who were different than the rest of the world, a people who would worship him and him alone and would, as a result, sort of reflect his very character to the world around them, his loving kindness would be seen by the other nations as they simply looked at God's people, this would not be what was going on for them at this time. Instead, they were living, God's people were living like, the, rather than offering the world an alternative, they looked just like the rest of the world around them. They were living like pagans, worshiping idols just like the other nations. Their mindset would have been something like this. Well, we have Solomon's temple in our city in all of its splendor. We are, after all, God's chosen people. How can we go wrong? He's chosen us. It it really didn't matter so they thought how they lived or what they did. God would take care of them. He would always be there. Think about it like this. These were a people who thought that because they had a religious building, and their lives were filled with religious activity that it didn't really matter how they lived. They could go to the temple to perform their religious duties, they could say their prayers, they could offer their worship, then the rest of the week they could live however they wanted to live. They could even worship other gods if they wanted to. They could take advantage of the poor if they wanted to. They could mistreat their neighbor if they felt so inclined, because after all, their life was filled with religion. Well, while their life was certainly filled with religious activity, what we know to be true is that their hearts were far from God. So Jeremiah is sent as a prophet of God to the people of God to send warning to them that they must turn from their sins and return to their God. Israel it's important to note is in a is experiencing a significant period of decline in its history. 400 years since David sat on the throne in the kingdom and the kingdom was united. And since then the kingdom has been marked by idolatry, and by covenant-breaking. They are proven to be, have proven to be, an unfaithful people. And as a result of their unfaithfulness, as a result of their sin, we know that judgment is coming to God's people at the hands of the Babylonians. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, are advancing on Jerusalem. Soon the streets of their dear city will be filled With bodies. We read that just a few verses before our text. So God sends Jeremiah to them as a way of warning them of the coming judgment, but also as a way of exhorting them to simply be who God had called them to be. Now, as you could possibly imagine, this was a difficult task. This was a really hard, hard task. Jeremiah had a hard ministry. He had a hard message to communicate to a hard hearted people, a people who ultimately wanted nothing to do with him or his message. He would serve in this capacity for some forty years, forty years of rejection from his own people. His own people we learn if you read through the book of Jeremiah that his own people are going to plot against him, that he will Jeremiah will, as a servant of the Lord, will endure tremendous persecution. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 33, we discover that Jeremiah himself is in prison, imprisoned by King Zedekiah. And if you're familiar with this prophet, you'll know that he has built up the reputation and the name of the weeping prophet. A, a tough existence, a tough job that God had called him to. If you read the book again, which I hope you will, you will discover sad story after sad story of disobedience and judgment, But, here, in chapters 30 through 33, in the midst of great disobedience and judgment, we discover a glimmer of hope. In fact, for a moment, the entire tone of the book changes dramatically. In the midst of really bad news, judgment, exile, we discover Really wonderful news, really good news. Church, Advent is a time of year where we all want to experience and embrace excitement and joy for the season. Some of us get so carried away, we even decide to go as far as just bear with me for a moment as far as decorating our homes before Thanksgiving. I know it's amazing. It actually happens. That's that's how ready we are to embrace the excitement and the joy of the season. Yet, many of us find ourselves here this morning frustrated. The reason we're so quick to embrace the joy is because many of us find ourselves so frustrated with life. We get a sense that the darkness around us is just creeping in and we fear that one day it might take over we are be sure of it in need of hope if that describes you advent is just for you it's just what you need it is a reminder that the light still shines in the midst of the darkness and the darkness will not consume it will not take it over Advent is a season that points us to hope and anticipation Reminding us that better days are coming Better days are coming We see it in the text Behold, the days are coming Remember, Jeremiah is writing to a people Who are about to endure horrors of conquest and captivity They will be in exile for some 70 years 70 years in Babylonian captivity Away from their home and I don't know about you, but if that described my life, I would be tempted. I would be tempted to think my sin was so great. So great. It just simply blew, blew my chance. The one shot I had is over. It's a wrap. Or maybe, maybe I'd be tempted to think this God who was supposed to be faithful to me and to my people has abandoned us has forgotten us. When I needed him the most, nowhere to be found, I'd be tempted, possibly, like you, to simply give up hope. Now here's the deal. Their sin was significant. Judgment, be sure of it, was on its way in the form of Babylonian exile. But God's faithfulness was far stronger than any foreign invader. He would not forget his people. He would would not forget the promise, the promise that he made some 400 years ago to David that he would, through his offspring, one time, one day, establish a kingdom that would endure forever. God would be faithful to that promise. So, how's God gonna do it? How's he gonna pull it off? Well, look at verse 15. In verse 15, we read that in those days, God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The hope for tomorrow is found, we're told, in the promise of a righteous branch. This is important and interesting imagery, a righteous branch. Maybe not what some of us would suspect, right? Maybe a mighty warrior is what we would be expecting to hear here. But instead, it's described as a righteous branch. It's not the only time that this imagery of a branch is used to describe the great king who will come from David. We first read about it in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 23, verse 5. We know Isaiah quotes it in chapter 11, verse 1. What is this image of a righteous branch? What does it mean? It's an odd image. What good is a branch going to do against the mighty Babylonian Empire? Well, imagine, if you will, for just a minute, a tree that has been cut down but not removed. The stump still in the ground. What is still intact? Underneath that stump The roots A She gets it right there The roots are still intact They absolutely are And some species of trees And bushes Will continue to grow After they've been cut down As long as the root system Has not been removed or disrupted So while it looks like Life Is totally gone on the surface Just a dead stump remains All the while underneath, underneath Life is active. There is still possibility. This stump in this image represents the dynasty of David. Because of the sin and the rebellion of David's descendants, because of their refusal to remain faithful to God, because of their sin against God and their insistence on worshiping idols, God cut off the house of David. Judgment came to the people at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Though while he cut them down, he did not remove the stump. Didn't remove, there's still a stump there. Yes, the people are living in exile. There is the appearance of no life, no hump, no hope. The stump, however, is still there. Hope is still possible. Now, some of you have seen this. I I recently experienced this last year when our community went through derecho, I got a little chainsaw happy, as many of you did, I'm sure, as well, okay? And decided to take advantage of, you know, my chainsaw activity and newfound skills, skill set, and just went kind of wild in our yard and cut down a bunch of shrubs, a bunch of shrubs that had been unkept and overgrown for years. And this was in the fall, and so I, I cut them down, and I thought, that's that. That'll be it. That'll be it. No more of that shrub, okay? I run this, okay? Well... As you can imagine, uh, just a few months later, as spring began to roll around, um, the root system still intact, lo and behold, just a few months, and suddenly, sign of life coming up, and tormenting me ever since. And by the way, if you're interested in starting up a business in Iowa City, stump removal. Let me just say, I've tried very hard to get a stump remover to come to my house, and it's just struck out many, many times. So there's just tuck that away if you're... Uh, budding entrepreneur, no pun intended, okay? (laughs) Branches sprouting up from what used to be, looked like the appearance of death. Life begins to emerge. God's people consider their situation the rubble of their city, the distance they are from their home, and they're inclined to think the kingdom is over, all hope is gone. But the text says a branch will sprout from that stump and that branch we know will be a king for the text says spring up for david it will come from the line of david the line of the king and he'll be a king like no other for he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land he will do what david's other descendants should have done but failed to do. He will be precisely the king that God's people long for, that God's people need. He will, the text says, uphold righteousness. And folks, church, this is so critical. It's so critical that this king is a king who upholds righteousness. Why is it so important? Because as the leader of the nation goes or went, so would the nation. If one of David's descendants tolerated idolatry, guess what? So would the people. If one of the descendants tolerated injustice or oppression, guess what? So would the people. He would be like no king the nation had ever seen. You see, the people did not just need to be brought back into the land. The people needed a new king. What would life look like under that new king? Well, look down. Let's consider together in verse 16 the result of his reign. We see it here in verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved. In my Bible, I just underlined the word saved. I also underlined the word securely. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which It will be called. I also underlined it stands out. The name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What would life look like under the reign and rule of this new king? Well, in verse 16, we see that this new king would lead his people away from the life of idolatry and covenant breaking and reign over them with righteousness and justice. And his reign would provide for the people of God salvation and security. And as the people are led by this true servant of God, this this true king, they would in turn reflect the very character of their God and, and reflect it to the people all over the world who would eventually say this about them. The Lord Is their righteousness See this passage ends In such a striking manner The beginning of verse 16 Describes sort of the state Of a future existence In those days The future Underneath the reign of this king Judah will be saved And Jerusalem will dwell securely This is a description Of what Judah and Jerusalem Will be like and, and then he says And this is the name by which it will be called What is it Referring to If you go back to chapter 25 and read a similar passage It's not going to say it It's going to say he It's the name by which he will be called But here The text says what That it will be called something Well it's referring to Judah being saved And to Jerusalem being secure So what will Judah being saved and Jerusalem being secure be called? What will the motto of this new city be? It will simply be, the Lord is our righteousness. Now, if you're reading the text or you're following along, this might strike you as odd. It should. With all the focus uh, so far to this point on the new king who would come from the line of David... You would maybe expect it to, re, to, to, respond, to, to read about Pointing to something about how this new king would be called That this king is our righteousness Some reference to the, the line of who would come from David But instead we read that the Lord is our righteousness So we're left with a little bit of it, a problem to solve Which is it? Which one is it? Is it God? Or is it the king who would come from the line of David? Who is it, ultimately, that's going to save these people? Well, if you've been around here much, you should know the answer to that question. And if not, so glad that you're here this morning. Let me just say that. Which one is it? Well, if we skip ahead in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we'll learn how this works. If you go to Luke chapter 1, verses 28 through 33... This is the story of when uh, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. It says this, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31. Gabriel is setting the expectations, clarifying exactly who this child was that she was about to give birth to. And he clearly says that this child is son of the Most High God and the son of David. God himself would take on flesh and would dwell among his people the son of God and the son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our righteousness. This Jesus would be the king that Jeremiah had prophesied about and God's people had longed to know. He would offer his people salvation and security. He would lead them in paths of righteousness and justice. It's so interesting As you consider this story, for centuries, Israel longing for a king to come, for the king to come. But when he came, he didn't quite meet their expectations, did he? They wanted a king, but they did not want a king like Jesus. They wanted one who would reign and rule with an iron fist. Jesus comes and has a message that sounds like this. Love your enemies. Blessed are you when others persecute you for righteousness' sake. They wanted a wealthy king who had all the power and prestige that this world had to offer. But Jesus said that it was the humble and the meek who would inherit the earth, the poor in spirit who would inherit the kingdom of heaven. They wanted a king who would destroy Their enemies. What did Jesus do? He died for his enemies. And he taught us to do the same. Enemies like you and like me who have rejected him, gave his life for. He came to show compassion and love to the vulnerable, care for the sick, provide hope for the hopeless. See, the people. Ultimately wanted a king Who was like themselves But Jesus offered them The king that they really needed That's what he offers you and me This morning This king would eventually give up his life And in doing so would perform The work necessary To accomplish the salvation For sinners Like you and me And would invite us To dwell in his home Securely forever this is the king we need king who would come and who would be the righteousness for us the righteousness that God requires Jesus was and is that king forever 2nd Corinthians Paul tells us for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So when Jeremiah, chapter thirty-three, fourteen 14 through 16, tells us that what would be declared or spoken over the very people of God, that the Lord is our righteousness, what he's telling us is that, that we would not be able ultimately to save ourselves, that God must save us, And that is precisely what Christ the king came to do. And what's this king doing right now? This king is in heaven. He's on his throne. He's reigning, and out of his mercy and his love, he's calling men and women, boys and girls, into his family to trust him, to turn away from their sins before it's too late. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, here's the deal. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait any longer. We're in this season, sort of, this Advent season, but but really it's not just a season, it's it's a, a period of time that exists until He comes back. And we don't know when He's coming back. Don't wait, turn from your sin and turn to God. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, my hope and prayer is that in our worship, in our fellowship, in our ministry as the people of God, that we would play a great song of hope in the midst of tremendous rubble. And in so doing, would point, would it not just inspire people to hope, but would ultimately point them to the king. Point them to the king. He's placed us on this earth to do that very thing. So this Advent season, it's a wonderful time to remind us of the amazing hope that we have in jesus but it's also an opportunity to be sort of a signpost in this world i think of that image of the cellist playing in the rubble directing other people's attention to the hope that we have in jesus church let's pray father god we uh Thank you so much That you are such an amazing God And when we consider um, The season that we're in right now This Advent season God I pray that you would allow this To truly be um, Not just a special time of year But for some of us here this morning A significant turning point In our life Where we would recognize Our inability To please you on our own Lord, and that we would receive the grace and mercy that you offer to us in Jesus. Lord, and that we would just simply fall into his arms. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to just recognize and appreciate the glorious gift that you have given us. a A gift that should inspire hope for generations to come. We ask these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.